0: So my wife made me wear this ribbon Saying that it's my birthday You know how it is when you're a little child And your mom is like, oh, put on your coat Be sure you have your gloves and your mittens, right? I'm sitting there on the front row She's like, oh, honey, you have to wear this Put this on She puts it on, I take it off She's like, no, put it back I take it off She's like, you have to put this on So I'm being obedient to my wife, okay? I'm 46, by the way, if you're wondering. I know that you're shocked and surprised because I look 35 or even younger, but I'm 46. So, well, good morning. It is a great day. If you are um, here visiting with us this morning, it's great to have you. Um, I've had the chance to meet some of you, and um, again, welcome. It's great to have you in our fellowship this morning. Uh, last week, John Cleghorn and Nino were here, um, visiting with us and preaching the word, and I thought they did a fantastic job, but two weeks ago, uh, Leslie and I were in Hershey, Pennsylvania. We were there for Cookie's mother's and Leslie's grandmother's and the kid's great-grandmother's 97th birthday. So that was really, really cool. We, um, we had like a, um, what do you want to call a luncheon sort of. Uh, lots of people were there. But um, all of the children had the chance to share about what it was like to grow up in Mama's, kind of her nickname, I guess, in Mama's household. So they all shared. But I mean, what really took the entire event was after the kids all shared, they kind of turned it over to Mama. And Mama, she kind of sat there and everything just kind of got really hushed and quiet. And um, she's, she's blind, but she's mentally just sharp as a tack. And it was dead silent. And she says, you know, she kind of has like an introductory statement. You know, I'm so glad that you're here and I love everybody. But she says she quoted Psalm 37 and she says, I was young and now I am old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. They are always generous and lend freely Their children will be a blessing. So as she was saying that, I pulled out my phone, and I'm like, let me just be sure she's getting it right here. (laughs) And she got it right word for word. 97 years old, still quoting the scripture, and then went on for another five minutes or so, basically talking about Jesus. And so I just thought it was so amazing, because it's not often that you get to hear from someone born in 1921. And after 97 years, the thing that she wants to talk about is Jesus. There's some wisdom there. But I want to thank Reese for preaching for me. Those two Sundays ago, thank you so much. Reese did a great job. Um, I watched it on YouTube. I just told him when I saw him. I watched it on YouTube and it was great. But um, please turn with me to Acts chapter 20 this morning. We're going to continue... We're winding up Acts, where we're getting towards the end, and we're actually going to begin skipping some sections because this latter part of Acts, like I said, is very different from the first part. A lot of it is, um, you know, they went here, they went there, and then there's a whole lot of nautical terms as you get later on. We're really going to try to zero in and focus on these last speeches that Paul gave. So uh, we will be doing some skipping as we come towards the end of the year. If you could put up my slide for me, The, the scene here... As Paul is on his way to Jerusalem at the end of his third now missionary journey. And he has gone um, from Antioch into the province of Galatia, kind of heading in a counterclockwise direction into Asia, which is western Turkey today, uh, crosses over into Greece, comes all the way down to Corinth. And then he was going to cross the Aegean Sea to get back to Syria, but they were trying to kill him. So he basically double tracks and goes back up the exact same way that he had come. And he stops in a place called Miletus. While he's there, he sends for the elders of Ephesus, mind you. He'd been in Ephesus for three years. Longest time he'd been in any single place. And so he calls for these elders. Um, The church by then, I'm sure, was large, was strong. And in my opinion, I believe that Ephesus was kind of Paul's Crowning achievement, I guess, of what the things that God had done through him. It was the point at which his ministry had reached its peak. And so he calls for the elders. And since this could have been their last time seeing him, he gives them a farewell charge. And just as David uh, shepherded and protected his family's sheep, he charges the elders to shepherd and protect the flock, which is God's church. His central message in this speech was, Be on your guard, be on your guard. And that is the title of the lesson this morning. As we read this, I don't want us to think, well, you know, Paul is having a private conversation with um, elders, overseers. I'm not an elder, so this really doesn't apply to me because just because the shepherd's job is to watch out for wolves, it doesn't mean that the sheep shouldn't be watching out for wolves, too. Does that make sense? And so it's good for us to be familiar with the concerns so that we, too, can recognize them and take action. And that's what we're going to explore this morning. The church has to be on guard as well, not just the church's leadership. Let's pray, and we'll jump right on into Acts chapter 20. Uh, Father, we are are just overjoyed to be able to sit together this morning, to sing some songs, to pray to you, to express our love, our joy, and our gratitude for what you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. And as we open up your word, as we look back on uh, things that were written roughly 2,000 years ago, Father, we pray that uh, it would be brought to life in our minds and in our hearts that your word would... Be powerful that your word would inspire us, that it would encourage us, that it would challenge us even if necessary. And Lord, that your word would change our minds and our hearts. Help us to be anchored in faith in all things that are your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to be on our guard for the arrows and the temptations that Satan brings our way. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Acts chapter 20, I'm going to go ahead just for context sake, read the entire speech, but we're really just going to focus on the second half. So Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 18, this is as Paul sends for these elders, he pulls them together, it says, when they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing, By the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions in everything I did. I showed you that by this kind of hard work We must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said. It is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was the statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Touching uh, ending to the passage there. But Paul charges these overseers to keep watch over themselves and the flock as well. And so we have to watch each other's back. Leaders have to make sure that other leaders are doing well so that everyone can be protected and guided in the right direction. And if they aren't watching over each other personally and collectively as a body of elders first, how can they possibly Then go on and keep watch over the flock at large. And so this is why we have training meetings and workshops and fellowship times on and on and on to promote these relationships and healthy accountability amongst the leadership. I've got two points this morning. The first is savage wolves, savage wolves. So, again, Paul told them to watch out. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Paul knew that once he left, the church would be vulnerable and these savage wolves would come in and destroy the church. And these dangers had to have been incredibly important because he says there in verse 31, remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So would you agree, like if you're doing something for three whole years, night and day with tears, does that mean he was walking around just crying like all day long? I doubt it. Probably, you know, it's a figure of speech. But for three whole years, he's saying that I never stopped warning you about these things. So every day he's saying, watch out for this. Watch out for that. I know I told you yesterday, but I'm telling you again, watch out because it's coming. Right. So it was incredibly important. Luke calls these elders overseers. That's the word that he use, uses. The, the Greek word there is episkopos. We've heard of episcopalian, right? Uh, this Greek word simply means um, epi, like epidermis or dermal or whatever. Skin basically sits on top of, and then scopo, right? Meaning to scope or to watch. So to oversee. And that was the role that these brothers had within the church. They were to watch over the church and look out for the risks and the hazards before they harm the church. And like I said earlier, just because they had the responsibility as overseers and Paul is telling them to watch out, it does not mean that the church should be naive and leave all of the protection up to the elders or the leadership of the church. Well, that's their job. That's their responsibility I'm just gonna kinda go on and live my own life and, and and they'll just figure it out for me and I hope I don't get snatched up. <laughs> and if I do get snatched up, guess what? Guess what? I've got somebody to blame. Well it's your fault. You didn't do what you no. No. Yes. The elders have a responsibility to oversee and to watch out. Yeah. But each one of us also has our own responsibility yeah. to not get eaten alive. Would you agree? <laughs> And so we also have to have the the swivel neck, constantly watching around for the savage wolves that could be coming into our lives, and in particular, in the life of the church. And so what do we need to be on guard for today? Have you ever heard of a SWOT analysis before? SWOT, S-W-O-T, analysis. It's a common way for organizations and groups to evaluate themselves and identify areas of weakness and then also areas of improvement. So uh, S stands for strengths, W stands for weaknesses, O stands for opportunities, T stands for threats. And if we were to do a SWOT analysis on the church today, what would our threats be? What are those savage wolves that are on the horizon? I'm going to list some things here that, in my opinion, are our greatest threats. Paul says in verse 29, he says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. And so these are external threats, threats from outside of the church that threaten to come into the church that can tear the church apart. The first of these threats is secularism. Secularism. What is secularism? This is a no-God or an anti-God worldview. And secularism is when the awareness and the recognition and the understanding of God is removed from daily life. So Paul, when he was in Athens, he quoted a philosopher and he said, In him we live and move And have our being. What did Paul mean when he said that? He meant that everything is created by God. And we live in God's environment. There is no place where there is no God. And every single place there is, is an appropriate place for God. What is there in life that is not about God? Can you think of anything that has no connection with God? Can you think of anything that God does not care about, that he has not created, that he has not made? Whose life is God not involved in? What circumstances does God not orchestrate or allow? Whose life does his word not judge? And for whom did his son not die? No one. Show or tell me one single solitary thing that God does not know about, or care about and if we were fish God's presence would be the water that we swim in whether we believe in him or not it really doesn't matter what you think what we think does not change reality and so we can wish God away or people can wish God away that does not mean that God goes away he's still there And secularism is the purposeful attempt, calculated attempt, to remove God from more and more parts of our lives. We've heard about all of the different scriptures that are removed from public places. You know, they don't want the Ten Commandments here. They don't want the Ten Commandments there. We're going to set up a a monument to, to, to Satan because someone has a cross sitting there. Well, I should have a monument to Satan sitting here, too. And it's ridiculous the stuff that the world is trying to do. You can't have God in school. Oh, that's too offensive. Unless it's a God other than Yahweh, then it's diversity. And let's talk about it. And let's have a great time discussing these other gods. Can't have God at work. Too controversial. The magazines, they say, don't talk about God at your holiday dinners. Too divisive, right? And this agenda is a threat to the church because when we begin to think that way, When we begin to think that there are places and spaces where God is not or where God does not apply or where God has no business being, then we begin to walk down the road of Romans chapter one. You can turn there if you want to. If you don't want to, you can just listen. Romans 118, Paul writes and says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth By their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. You've got no excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. The second outside threat is materialism, especially with the holidays coming. Did you know that 40% of the average American's disposable income is spent between Black Friday and Christmas? 40% Luke 12, Jesus says to watch out and be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What does this mean? This means that our lives are more than what we own, but our culture tells us that we just must have the greatest iPhone, the iPhone X or 10 or whatever it is that they're up to at this point, or some similar possession. You got to have a boat. You got to have that zero turn riding lawnmower. You got to have that nice house, right? iPhones are now a status symbol. No longer are they simply devices to communicate with. And if you don't have one, you're somehow lesser. There was a recent article written with some survey results done by Match.com. We've heard of Match.com before, right? That's the online dating site. And it says one of the more interesting results from the study is that iPhone users are 21 times more likely to judge those who use Android devices (laughs) when you're on a date with them. Look, I'm rocking an Android. And I'm proud of it. I'm proud of it. (laughs) All the Android users out of their phones. (laughs) But it's crazy. I mean, literally... What they're saying is we've become so hyper-focused on a possession that when you sit down on a date with someone, organized through Match.com, and you both place your, your phones upon that table, the one with the iPhone is 21 times more likely to judge the one with the Android device because they've got an Android device. Isn't that crazy? What's almost as bad is comparatively, Android users are 15 times more likely to do the same with iPhone users. So I guess that settles the debate as to which one is more judgmental, right? But a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Our lives are more than what we own. And materialism is a threat because it tricks us into thinking that our treasure is actually here on earth. We look at those phones, nice and shiny as they are, or our mowers or watches or whatever they are. We look at that and we think, oh, I've got my treasure right here on earth. But you know, when we live that way, if we get to heaven, what treasure will be waiting for us? If we build up our treasure here on earth and we just pour all of our stock into a possession... What's going to be waiting for us in the end? Mm. Nothing. You're going to be wishing you had that iPhone when you got to heaven. Or Android phone. Jesus says to store up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. The third outside threat is pluralism. Pluralism means that Everything, anything goes. There's no right, no wrong. It's all relative. There's no truth. And when it comes to your favorite color or what you want to eat for dinner tonight, it is relative. But when it comes to morals, there are absolutes based on the personality and the character of God. The things that are right in this world are right because God is that way. And he says that life and people should be the same way that he is. God speaks the truth. He doesn't lie. Therefore, he wants us to speak the truth and not lie. God is patient. That's why he calls us to be patient. He's loving. He's kind. He's generous. That's why he wants us to be loving, kind, and generous. It's because of who he is. He's a protector. He's a provider. He's a healer. He's holy. And guess what? He wants us to be holy too. Because of who he is. Not just random, arbitrary rules or standards that just kind of flew out of nowhere but because of who God is in his nature and his personality. Pluralism is a threat because when we begin to think that it's somehow wrong to make a judgment on moral issues, and I'm not talking about self-righteously judging other people, but I'm talking about soberly judging ourselves and others against the word of God. When we somehow think it's wrong to make these judgments, we begin to accept what is unholy, and what should be rejected in our lives. We become corrupt instead of the holy people that God wants us to be. And so in verse 30, Paul says, Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So there's the external threats, right? The things that are outside that are threatening to come into the church. But Paul says, you know what? There's stuff going on inside of the church that's threatening to tear the church apart as well. And you've got to be on your guard against that. And so what are these inside threats? Again, my opinions. I don't have names of people currently doing this or what Paul is talking about. And if I did, I probably wouldn't call them out here on a Sunday service. But I think what Paul is saying does point to an inside threat that we've got to be watchful for. And that is the sin of pride, especially amongst those who lead or desire to lead. Pride. The church needs leadership. But unfortunately, leadership is a breeding ground for pride. And there is a pride in men that says, I know better. I have a better version of the truth. And I'm going to seek to pursue my way and my will more than I seek to pursue unity. And I'm not immune. I'm not immune to this. There have been many times that I've struggled and wrestled with pride. And I pray on an almost daily basis. Father, please help me to grow in my humility each day. Help me to be humble. And not lift myself up. Men with this kind of pride are dangerous to the church. I've seen it happen too often that an arrogant brother or sister with a strong personality leads people astray. Ephesians 4, Paul says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Pride destroys unity. Two other things that I see happening on the inside that if we aren't on our guard will draw us away. One is lukewarmness. Lukewarmness. It's like Goldilocks. We've all heard the fairy tale before, right? Not too hot, not too cold, just right. We don't want to rock the boat anymore in the church. We're too afraid to offend and to hurt feelings. In other words, we're afraid to be too hot. But we come to church, we sing our songs, we give our money, because we don't want to be too cold. We want to be just right. A few days ago, I called the guy who baptized me back in 1995. He left the church roughly 20 years ago and he now lives out in California. Doing great, has a son that's two years old. But we spent a long time talking about our lives as we normally do, catching up. And he started asking me about different people in the Cincinnati church. That's where our family was before we moved here. And he was asking me, oh, how is so-and-so and and how such-and-such? And And I'm telling him, oh, yeah, they've got these children. And oh, yeah, their children now have children and, and on and on and on. And, you know, he started asking me about different parts of the church culture. And one of the things he says, "Do you guys still have those big conferences and those convention centers?" And I said, "Yeah, we actually just had one right here in Virginia Beach. We had about 3,000 people, and it was amazing." He said, "Do you still have like all that stuff going on, like every single day?" And I I said, "What do you mean?" He says, "Don't you remember?" He says, "We had something on Sunday. We had church." Then we had leaders meeting after church. said that on Monday, he said that they said that that was kind of your day off, but you would still get together with somebody. Then Tuesday was the men's D group. Wednesday was the midweek and Thursday was the women's D group. And then we had Bible studies on Friday. we were out evangelizing on Saturday. Don't you remember that? And I said, you know what? You're right. That is how it was. I said, well, no, we're not quite like that anymore. He says, well, what about staying up until like two in the morning on work nights and studying the Bible with people? Do you guys still do that? I said No, no, not quite so much. I said, you know what? The church has really changed in 20 years, really changed. He said, well, what about discipling and confessing your sins to each other? He's like, I remember we used to do that all the time. Don't you remember? I said, yeah, I remember. And some people still do that. Some people do, but not everybody. He's like, really? He says, well, how does the church stay together then? I said, you're right. You're right. I don't really know. He says, well, what about all the baptisms? I remember people getting baptized like all the time. I said, well, not nearly as much anymore. It's not quite like that. The only thing I could say at the end of the conversation was, you know what? The church has really changed. Some things are for the good. Lots of things have been for the good. And I pointed those things out to him. Because he asked me, what about people being really harsh and brutal and mean and all this stuff? I'm like, no, 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 no. we're we're not like that anymore. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) but i couldn't stop thinking about the frog in the kettle we all know how you cook a frog right you stick him in lukewarm water you don't stick him in cold water because he'll jump out you don't stick him in hot water because he'll jump out you put him in the lukewarm water and then you just slowly turn the dial and raise that temperature until the frog is cooked And I don't think that we are lukewarm, okay? I don't think that we are lukewarm. I think we have to be on our guard against this inside threat so that we don't become lukewarm and get cooked. Okay? In Revelation 3, John wrote, or Jesus wrote to the church in Laodicea, and he says, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. I live in America and I got it good. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. The other or the third inside threat is self-preservation or loving our lives. In Luke 14, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, he can't, and even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. And so to be resurrected, we must first die have you ever heard of a resurrected person that has not died first no it does not happen that way how many of us want to be resurrected all of us do well guess what you gotta die first you can't go into the resurrection just walking living and breathing it does not work that way in the same way we don't bury living people we're not there at the gravesite shoveling dirt onto the coffin with the hand just sticking up out of the out of the ground, right? Clutching and grasping for life and for air. No. The person is dead. And that's how they get buried. Following Jesus requires death. If we hold on to our lives, we will lose them. And the inside threat of loving our lives can be seen in a focus in the church that is more on our needs than the needs of the lost. We organize church primarily around our needs instead of the needs of lost souls. We do the comfortable things that build us up, encourage us over the uncomfortable things that lead to the salvation of souls. And I take responsibility because it starts with the leadership. But guess what? We're already saved, guys. We're already good to go. The church is the body of Christ. And Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. His body and his life were sacrificed for lost people, namely us. That's how we got here. Because Jesus' body was sacrificed for us. We collectively make the body of Christ with Christ as the head. Guess what? That body is still meant to do the same thing, to sacrifice on behalf of lost souls. Jesus didn't save his body. He didn't save himself. To make himself comfortable. He sacrificed himself. He poured himself out. So that other people could be saved. And again, that's how we got here. Because of sacrifice. John says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground. Jesus said it in John. Sorry, Unless a kernel of wheat, of wheat falls to the ground and dies. It remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And many times we think that our house needs to be in order in order to bring someone else into that house. How are we going to make disciples if the church is messed up? If we don't start on time and if we can't organize the this and the that and whatever it is, brother, sister, so-and-so is in sin and I don't feel loved and I don't have friends in the church. So how am I supposed to bring people into the church? My family isn't doing well and my kids aren't doing well and my car broke down and I lost my job and how am I supposed to bring people into the church? That's how we think. And so we do the opposite. We say, well, let's come together. Let's pull together. Let's huddle up together. Let's be nice and warm and cozy and let's huddle around the fire and let's get warm. And once we are doing good, Then we can invite some people on into the church. Our lights are going to shine and everything is going to be awesome then. But guess what? I've been in the church for 20, 23 years now. It's never been perfect. And I don't expect it ever to be perfect because it's made up of people like you and me. We sin. Does that make sense? Jesus says unless you bring people in, their house will never be in order. Same goal, different focus. The first is inward, self-preserving. The second is outward and self-sacrificing. And so, do we build family to seek and to save the lost? Or do we seek and save the lost in order to build family? We've talked about this a couple of times. Each and every one of us needs to pray about this. Think about this. Because one thing or the other makes a huge difference in how we approach church. Sorry. We have to ask less, what does the church need? And start asking more, what do the lost need? And our needs will be met as we meet other people's needs. Our focus has to move from self to Jesus. From self to Jesus. And regardless of how messed up our house is, with Jesus, we've always got something to offer the world. Because the worst day with Jesus is better than the best day without it. Do you believe that? Think about it. Would you rather be Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, what, B- Jeff Bezos, Bezos, have your say his name, whatever. Super, ultra, mega, duper, wealthy, yachts cruising around the world, your car never breaks down, never got to worry about losing your job, without Jesus, or poor, barely getting by, Barely have a place to live. Life a wreck. But you've got Jesus Christ. We got to think about that one. We've got to be on our guard against inside and outside threats. And so Paul tells them to watch out and to be on their guard. And I would assume that this probably would have created some fear. And particularly when he starts talking about savage wolves are going to come into the church. I would have been scared myself. But I don't think that was Paul's plan. I think he was just talking about the reality of life. And so he gives them confidence and he gives them a solution in verse 32. He says, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And so the second point is committed to God and his grace. Though Paul wouldn't be there anymore, they were not going to be alone. He committed them to God and to the message of grace through Jesus Christ. What is he saying? He's saying that even though there are dangers on the horizon, God's got your back. It's going to be okay. Paul knew that at the end of the day, it wasn't his church. It has always been and it always will be God's church with Jesus as the head, Jesus as the chief cornerstone. Paul hadn't died for any of them, and none of them had been baptized into the name of Paul. And so Paul was able to leave them with a clear conscience, knowing that he had done everything that he could, and the church was in the best hands possible, Jesus' hands. And as much as it must have hurt him, he knew that God would guide them and that he had left them with a powerful word of encouragement, which is the message of grace. This message was able to build them up and bring them their inheritance. And he had preached this message for three years in the synagogue, in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and from house to house, that same message of grace. It was a message of grace that God had become man and died for his enemies and the ungodly sinners. That God had done it all on his own. Not because men and women loved him. That's not why he did it. Not because we were so good. Not because we had such great hearts. Not because we're such hardworking people. He didn't do it to repay a debt to mankind. He didn't do it because we deserved it. Who can place God in their debt? He did it because he loves his creation. He loves every single one of us. Rich or poor, black, white, Latino, Asian, other, if you check that box, other, young, old, Christian or non-Christian. He loves every single person on earth. And he died for every one of us so that our sin could be forgiven. He died not to pay his debt, but to pay our debt. And this is the message of grace. Jesus rose from the dead and sits at God's right hand right now. And God wants us to join him. He's like longing for the day. He he wants the relationship. He wants the connection. He wants to rejoice at the resurrection. He wants to spend eternity with us and give us this inheritance. He's just waiting to lavish praise. Well done, good and faithful servant. Blessing upon our lives. And he's patiently waiting for us to see how worthless life is without him and to turn to him. Make a decision today. Decide to respond to this message of grace. Sit down, open the Bible with whomever brought you, and learn more. This is what Paul preached those three years that he was in Ephesus. Because he knew that in spite of all the warnings of danger, this was all they needed. Jesus And the gospel. That's it. And it's all we need, church. We don't need anything else besides Jesus and the gospel. And the people that we reach out to don't need anything else besides Jesus and the gospel. That's it. Paul worked while he was in Ephesus. His labor provided not just for himself, but his companions as well. And with his eye on others instead of himself, he helped the weak through his hard work. Receiving the greater blessing that comes through giving rather than receiving. And among the tears, the hugs, and the kisses that come with sad goodbyes, they got down on their knees and prayed. No doubt it was during this prayer that Paul committed the Ephesian elders to God. And it was a prayer that may have sounded like this. Please pray with me at this time. Almighty God, you... Love your creation so much that you sent Jesus, the spotless lamb, to die for us. And while we don't deserve it, we are grateful for what you've done. This message of grace has been preached in our cities and neighborhoods. May it continue to change lives and save souls until Christ returns. We commit the church to your trust, to your guidance and to your care. Speak to and through our leadership team and elders Give us the hearts of true shepherds. May we be alert and help us to see dangers on the horizon. Protect us from the outside threats of secularism, materialism, and pluralism. And inside the church, teach our leadership to walk humbly before you. Fill our hearts with zeal for you. And let us lose our lives for you so that we can be saved in the end. We know our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. So help us to stay alert so that we may be on our guard. Amen. Amen. Please stand if you close out with one final song. If you have uh, kids and children ministry, you may get them now.